Hello and welcome back to the Science of Everything podcast. This is episode three, uh, part two of Organic Agriculture. I'm your host, James Fodor. And in this podcast, I discuss a wide variety of topics in both the natural and social sciences, exploring the many fascinating insights that the scientific method yields about the world around us. Now, as I said, uh, the topic for this week is Organic Agriculture, part two. Now, in this episode, I'll be looking at the issue of organic food, is it of a higher quality than conventional food? And I'll be comparing the efficiency and costs of organic versus conventional food. Now, these two issues are probably the most controversial aspects of organic food. Um, Not too many. Last week I focused mostly on the historical background and um, of organic agriculture, the methods used, and uh, the environmental impact of organic agriculture, and those things are fairly uncontroversial. Not too many people would dispute the fact that organic agriculture does have environmental benefits. But uh, food quality is much more controversial, so let's get into that. Basically, there are three main arguments made um, as to why organic food is uh, of a higher quality to conventional food. And they are that it lacks pesticide residues, which are found on conventional um, agricultural products. Second one is that it tastes better. And the third one is that it has it's more nutritional, high nutritional content. It's better for you. And so, really, these are all scientific questions. And so, let's see what the scientific method... Uh, can reveal as to the answers of these questions. So, pesticide residues. Pesticide residues are found on conventional foods in much higher amounts than on organic foods, though it should be noted they are not entirely absent on organics either, both because organic agriculture still does use some pesticides, and also because um, there are going to be pesticide residues found in all soils as a result of um, uh, you know spread of this through the water, through the air, um, and also just... Um, pesticides that are still found in the soil as a result of previous uh, agriculture in that area. But, as said, conventional uh, more pesticide residues are found on conventional foods than organic foods. However, the amounts of pesticide residues that are allowed to be on foods um, are closely regulated in the US and, and all developed countries, um, and the levels of pesticides that are actually found on foods are almost always well below the levels that are considered dangerous. Now, in the previous podcast, you'll remember that I mentioned the fact that everything is a poison. It just depends upon how much of it you have. Um, if you have very low quantities of, of a substance, it's not necessarily dangerous. Um, so, you know, if you ever hear people say something to the effect of um, there's mercury in this or there's lead in that or there's um, you know arsenic in some, such and such, that doesn't necessarily mean anything because if there are only tiny, tiny trace amounts of it, it's it's really a non-issue. All of these, um, all, you know, chemicals, drugs, um, vitamins, minerals, heavy metals, anything, only has radiation also only have a negative impact uh, if they are in a sufficiently high concentration or dose. It's all about how much. And so just because there are pesticide residues found upon uh, foods does not mean that they pose any risk to human health. So, for example, in a 2003 study, the U.S. Food and and Drug Administration detected pesticide residues in 37% of domestic food samples and 28% of imported samples. However, 
For pesticides uh, for which a tolerance level had been set, only 0.4% of domestic samples and 0.5% of imported samples exceeded these levels. So that's you know pretty small, a pretty small amount. Um, based on findings by the European Commission in 2003, so this is a different study, chronic exposures to individual pesticides uh, range from 0% to 0.2% of accepted daily intake levels. Uh, the same study did show, however, that ac acute exposure in some individuals with the worst combination of risk factors, so for example, individuals who consumed a lot of a particular food item and um, had various other risk factors that predisposed them towards these sorts of things, could exceed, their intake could exceed the acceptable daily intake by up to 150% and 900% for toddlers. Obviously, children are a much greater risk for these things because they have smaller bodies and so, you know, the same amount of pesticide um, residue is going to uh, have a, a larger effect for them. And also because they're still developing, uh, you know, still growing. Another total uh, diet study by the, uh, the FDA, which covered all ages from toddlers up to, up to the elderly, determined that for virtually all of the 38 pesticides that they tested, the highest rates of exposure were less than 1% of, um, uh, of the acceptable daily intake. And none of the pesticides came in at more than 5%. So, uh, and this is a quote from the Journal of Food Science, uh, from a Journal of Food Science article, quote, To put such values in perspective, the ADI typically, the average daily, uh, the acceptable daily intake, typically represents a value 100 times lower than the highest level of exposure to a pesticide given to the most sensitive animal species on a daily basis throughout its lifetime that has not caused any noticeable toxicological effect. A typical human exposure of 1% of the ADI therefore represents an exposure 10,000 times lower than levels that do not cause toxicity in animals, end quote. Uh, so what does that mean? Basically, in order to come up with these uh, you know, acceptable dietary intake levels, um, studies are made on animals, so they feed them these pesticides or uh, food with pesticide residues on them and continually increase the dosage until they find an, an effect, a negative health effect. Um, and then they take that level and they divide it by some uh, sort of safety margin factor. And this uh, this factor depends upon a whole bunch of things. It depends on exactly what is being measured. But in these cases, it seems fr from what I uh, from the Journal of Food Science article that the safety factor is about a hundred times in in these case for pesticide residues. So basically, that means they do tests on animals uh, with these pesticides, uh, find that the dosage which only just starts to have an effect on the animals, then they divide that by a hundred. And that's the level of a maximum um, um, daily intake of these pesticide residues that they set. So you know, if you find that uh, even so, if which means that for these studies that we've been looking at above, where you know uh, pesticide intakes were like 0.2% of the ADI levels, that's well, as as that previous quote said, it's like 10,000 times lower than levels which showed toxicity in animals. It's the chances of that causing any harm to you are so low, it's almost certainly not worth even considering. And even when we look at the worst case scenarios of those individuals with the worst risk factors I talked about before, is of levels of 150 or up to 900%, that's, yeah, maybe there's some degree of danger there for the very highest ones, and, and perhaps um, some extra studies need to be done to that. But even so, I'm, I still doubt that there's a significant issue there. 
just because the uh, there's such a large safety margin, you're talking two orders of magnitude below um, the animal studies levels that were shown to cause any effect. And just remember that when we're talking about risk, all risk is relative. You know, living is risky. Getting up out of bed in the morning poses a risk. People die every day. Well, people die all the time from such simple things as falling down the stairs, uh, drowning in backyard pools, um, burning themselves in the kitchen, um, and of course. One of the most common causes of, of preventable of accidental death is through car accidents. So everything we do in our lives is risky. And so just because there is a cer certain statistical risk of pesticide residues causing harm in foods doesn't mean that that's really something that we need to worry about. So this is a quote from Nature, which um, relates to what I was just saying. Quote, most toxicologists urge caution in assessing and regulating pesticide residues but they don't see the need to eliminate them entirely, end quote. So that supports what I was just saying. Just because there are pesticide residues found on conventional foods doesn't mean that we need to get up and panic about this. The levels are very low, so it's not significant, basically, is, is the conclusion of pretty much all the studies that I read. It's not something that, needs to, that people need to be concerned about. Okay, so now, uh, briefly, I want to look at some other contaminants that may be found on uh, conventional foods. Uh, so one concern of organic agricultural proponents is that residues of animal medications, uh, medications and vaccines and so forth that are given to uh, animals may be found in the meats um, that people eat and that could have uh, harmful impacts. Uh, now, in regards to that, the UK Food Standards Agency has said, quote, all, ve uh, all veterinary medicines must be assessed for the safety of any residues. Um, there are also controls over their use which apply to both organic and conventional farming. The use of medicines does not imply that residues remain in food. Nearly all samples tested are free of residues." End quote. So basically, the, uh, the idea of veterinary medicines contaminating meat supplies is a non-issue. It's uh, these things are carefully regulated in both organic and conventional farming, and it's not something we need to worry about. Once again, it's it's a matter of dosage. The amounts are so small. Um, well, well, in fact, this study said that uh, most samples are free of residues, but I imagine probably you could detect some of them if you really tried. But once again, uh, they're not significant, so it's not something that you need to worry about. Now, other studies have shown that there are high levels of nitrates in conventional um, agricultural soils and, and products compared to uh, organic um, organic produce. Um, now remember, nitrates are the molecules that are found in um, soils which store nitrogen. Well, you know, nitrates implies that nitrogen is part of the molecule, um, and they're necessary for the plants to um, take up the nitrogen which they need to grow. It's an important nutrient for plant growth. But um, we don't want too high levels of nitrogen in, yeah, of nitrates in foods because that can be damaging to human health. So there is some evidence that nitrates may be found in higher levels in conventional compared to organic foods, and that's not so surprising if you consider that um, uh, artificial fertilizers are basically dumping large amounts of um, nitrogen onto the um, onto plants, which then gets converted into nitrates into the soil, um, and that doesn't happen in organic agriculture. Uh, so that could be an issue, but once again, it's probably not that significant. And conversely, there's actually some evidence that the non-use of pesticides may actually stimulate the production of natural uh, plant defensive uh, 
toxins and, and in plants, um, and those could potentially be damaging to human health. Now, uh, the studies that I looked at, that's probably not too much of an issue, but it just goes to point out, uh, to, to demonstrate the fact that, you know, just because something is natural, it's not necessarily safer. You know, there are risks to um, using nitrates and pesticides on uh, in conventional agriculture, but there are also risks to not using them. Uh, for example, these natural plant defensive toxins. So, other contaminants, probably not too much of an issue either way. Now, uh, let's move on to taste comparisons. Or proponents of organic agriculture say that organic food tastes better than conventional food. Now, you'd think that this would be relatively easy to study, you know, just do a blind taste test and, and see, what, uh, see what the results are. And such studies have been conducted, and generally most show no difference. There are some. There is some evidence that maybe organic orange juice and apples, or a few other things, may be slightly preferred um, over conventional foods. But most studies show either no difference or inconsistent pattern of difference. So you know, some organics preferred, some conventional preferred, and that's actually what you expect in in any study that has a significantly large number, a sufficiently large number of products being compared. You know, just by chance, you'll have. Uh, mo movement pr preference in one direction or the other. Um, so it seems from the body of research that probably there's no significant difference in taste between the two. However, one factor to bear in mind is that there may be a tendency for organic goods to be sold and purchased at a higher level of freshness than uh, conventional foods, and that could be a confounding uh, variable in real-world comparison. So if you, know, you're, if you, for example, uh, personally feel that organic food it has is of a higher quality of a higher freshness uh, sorry it tastes better or whatever that may be because you're buying it um, from a farmer's market or, or whatever else where it's fresher than the conventional food so that's not really there's nothing intrinsic about organic that makes it fresher it's just you're buying it fresher and that's maybe a real world uh, factor which makes people think that it's um, organic food is of a higher quality when in fact it's that's not uh, an effective organic agriculture at all so this is a quote from um, one of the studies that I read. Quote, there is yet to be convincing evidence that organic produce differs in sensory terms from conventional produce, let alone that there is some taste advantage. However, as noted earlier, without considerably more well-controlled research, it cannot be proposed that such differences may not be apparent for some foods under some growing conditions. End quote. This, this will come up again in the nutrition, uh, in the nutrition comparisons, but the taste of a, of a food, of fruit, grain, whatever, is highly dependent upon the climate in which it was grown, the exact soil in which it was grown, the exact nutrients it was exposed to, the the way in which it was stored, the way in which it was handled, the way in which it was prepared. There are so many confounding variables that it's really not very meaningful to say that you know organic or conventional could even be superior to the other. For, for example, if you consider the fact that if I eat, uh, you know, if I have a rotten piece of food or a, a bruised apple or a um, or a, a way overripe banana, you can tell very clearly that these are inferior to, um, you know, your average, you know, your ripe banana or your non-bruised apple or your, your non-rotten pear. Um, there's a very clear difference. That very clear difference does not exist with organic versus conventional foods. You know, there may be studies have been conducted, but there'd be no clear effect. That shows that if the effect does exist, it has to be it, it has to be fairly small because if it was really big, it would have been detected earlier. Just like it's really easy to detect, you know, the difference between a bruised and a non-bruised apple. Um, so it's most likely that differences in you know 
climate and handling uh, soil nutrients, etc., have a much higher impact, or, and also degree of freshness, have a much higher degree of impact upon taste than whether it's organic or conventional. Okay, now let's look at nutrition. Proponents of organic agriculture claim that organic food has high levels of nutrients. It's better for you. Um, now, studies comparing crop nutrients over time and also between organic and conventional food are fraught with difficulty. Now, this relates to what I just said, bef uh, what I just said before: climate, transportation, and storage methods, particular crops that are chosen, uh, how you measure the nutrients. All of these things have a big impact upon the uh, the outcomes that you get. Um, and many of the sources that I read, in fact, pretty much all of them, stated that more rigorously controlled studies are needed because the studies that we have at the moment are just not adequate. However, that being said, the body of evidence, the balance of evidence, shows that there is no significant difference between organic and conventional food in terms of nutrient quantities. For example, this is a quote from the UK Food Standards Agency. Quote, Consumers may choose to buy organic fruit, vegetables and meat because they believe them to be more nutritious than other food. However, the balance of current scientific evidence does not support this view. It is true that some scientific papers reach this conclusion. However, others find no difference. As in any field of science, to reach a robust conclusion, it is necessary to evaluate the weight of evidence across a range of published papers. Care should be taken in over-reliance on single papers. End quote. And that's an important point, you know, just because one paper says something, that doesn't really prove anything. You need to examine the body of evidence, and that's what I tried to do in researching for this podcast. Tried to, as I mentioned in the in part one of the organic food series, tried to, I tried to ignore anything that came from uh, overtly pro-organic agriculture sources, because quite frankly, if an organization states on its website that their mission is to promote the adoption and use of organic agriculture, then I highly doubt that they're going to come out with any study which shows anything other than that organic food is you know, better in all respects than conventional food. I think that pub studies published in reputable academic journals and also by government agencies are much more likely to be, uh, to be neutral, uh, to be less biased. Okay, and looking at that body of um, hopefully uh, less biased evidence, uh, it seemed that pretty much the conclusion was that there is no difference in nutrient levels. And I've got a, quite a number of references on the notes page if you're interested. And I won't read them all out now because they're, they all state pretty much the same thing that some studies show uh, slight excesses in some areas uh, for, for organics, some, you know, conversely, um, slow show slight um, benefits in conventional agriculture, but overall there's probably no difference. Also, uh, freshness levels, storage conditions, crop variety, the particular type of crop you're planting, soil conditions, weather conditions, how animals are fed, processing methods, soil microbial populations, crop rotation methods, all of these things impact upon the nutrient levels of, of plants and, and also meat and are likely to swamp any difference that you get from pure you know, organic versus uh, conventional uh, agriculture. It should be noted also that the plants themselves do not change. You know, it's the same spe it's the same species being grown in either case. Um, so there's nothing magical about a crop just because it's it's organic. Um, so it's really just the conditions it grows up in. You know, the nutrient levels, uh, soil conditions, and other things that I just mentioned that it, that affect uh, its nutrient levels. And there's no basis in any evidence that we have at the moment that organic is significantly different to um, much less better than conventional food. 
And just one final comment that I wanted to make about microbial contamination. Now there is an argument that use of animal manure as a fertilizer for organic agriculture has the tendency to lead to higher levels of bacterial microbial contamination, particularly E. coli, the type of um, the type of microbes that are found in in the feces of animals, um, whose which is in turn used for fertilizer. Uh, that is a danger. However. Um, such things are regulated, uh, just as the pesticide residues for conventional um, agriculture is regulated. And if the levels of microbial contamination exceed those levels, then basically you can't sell the food. If manure is composted correctly, then it should there should be no reason for microbial contamination, basically because if in the process of feces turning into manure, the process of composting, the sufficiently high temperatures are reached such that most of the microbes die. And so this microbial contamination should not be too much of an issue, and indeed empirical studies have shown that it probably is not very significant. So that's an, actu an actual argument against organic agriculture, but once again it doesn't seem to stand up to empirical testing. Okay, so let's move on to e the question of is organic agriculture much less efficient than conventional agriculture? And I say less efficient because generally the main argument against organic agriculture is that uh, it's much less efficient, you know. Um, one quote I read that was that a couple of decades ago, if you mentioned organic agriculture in, you know, a conventional university setting and biology or agricultural departments, um, the response you'd get was something to the effect of organic agriculture equals world starvation or something like that because of the argument that it produces significantly lower yields. Okay, now here's a, here is a quote from a Nature article, and Nature is a pretty, pretty prestigious scientific publication uh, journal, so I consider it to be fairly reliable. Quote, The elimination of pesticides and herbicides does not seem to reduce yields as much as you might expect. Because pests tend to prefer particular plants, uh, the crop rotations favoured by organic farmers help to prevent insect populations from accumulating to damaging levels. Continuous cover cropping in winter also help also helps to keep weeds down so that soil accumulates fewer weed seeds. Natural pesticides and mechanical weeding finish the job. End quote. So, from that quote and from also other sources that seem to support that, you don't really need pesticides and herbicides to keep pests under control. Crop rotation, uh, cover cropping, and natural pesticides and mechanical weeding can do a pretty good job. However, it should be noted that there are pests endemic to certain regions, um, such as a certain, pest, uh, a certain centipede in the northwestern United States, for which no organic eradication method has been found. So, <coughs> organic methods of eradicating pests are generally pretty effective, but not always. So, in terms of fertilizers, once again, it seems that manure is a pretty effective means of keeping... Um, of keeping the, the soils, manure and crop rotations, seem to do a pretty good job of maintaining um, soil nutrient levels so that you don't really need artificial fertilizers. Organic raising of cattle, however, is notably less efficient than conventional methods with less milk per cow requiring more cows um, to produce the same amount of output and hence, ironically, more methane emissions, methane emissions for the same level of output. Methane is a greenhouse gas. So, in this respect, at least, organic ca organic cattle could result in an in, uh, increase in um, in greenhouse gas output. Now, the ultimate question is 
though, um, aside from all these sort of theoretical questions, is what does the data show about yield differences? Now, this is uh, between conventional and organic systems, and this is you know, very controversial. We get studies saying all sorts of things. One study I saw uh, showed that there was basically no difference in yields um, between the two, but that came from a website whose avowed purpose was to promote the adoption of organic agriculture, so I pretty much ignored that. Studies that I, sh that I found from government and um, scientific journals were pretty consistent, showing that on average it seems that the um, difference in yield output is somewhere between about 10 and 50%. Standard values I, I, I saw were around 30 to 40 percent a reduction in yields. Yield refers to basically the amount of crop you get per uh, area of land, per land area. But of course, the difference in yields varies wildly between crops. So it's different for grains, different grains is different for fruits and vegetables. It's different for um, meats. Generally, the effect on meat is greater than it is for uh, grains and fruits and vegetables but the overall effect seems to be something around 30-40% reduction in yields. However, that said, organic farms do consistently outperform conventional farms in times of flood, drought and other adverse conditions, generally with 70-90% to 90 greater yield, so there is a big effect there. Um, and it seems to be, the reason for that seems to be that the higher soil quality of organic farms provides a sort of reserve that the plants can tap into in hard times. They also seem to preserve water better in the soil, <coughs> owing to the higher organic content. However, one point that should be noted is that organic agriculture has not received as much research attention or funding as conventional agriculture, so yields may well improve as more work is done in this area. So it's not a fully fair comparison. Um, but overall, it does seem that organic yields are lower um, by maybe 30-40% than conventional yields. That's the best data that I could get from the research. Now, more important though than yields is actually the cost of organic food, because remember, yields only tell us how much uh, output there is per land area, and that, that's not really so important, because you also have to factor in, you know, inputs of you know, fertilizers, inputs of machinery, inputs of labor, those are all important. Ultimately, it comes down to how much does it cost, when all of the inputs are factored in, how much does it cost? Organic input, organic uh, costs are lower, obviously, in terms of fertilizers and pesticides because you know they don't need them. But they're generally higher for machinery, labor, and seed. Um, overall, it seems that oh, also economies of scale do not seem to be as, as significant in, in organic compared to conventional farms. Although that may be just a tendency, and not you know because the organic movement is generally caught up with buy local and selling to local farmers markets and so on. So that may just be a tendency, and not anything intrinsic to organic agriculture. Organic farms also, it seems to be they need more management, more close management than conventional farms. Um, because, you know, they have to carefully manage the cover crops, the undercrops, the crop rotation, the timing of uh, putting manure on, and all of these other factors. Whereas in conventional farms, it seems like, you know, it's just sort of, you dump the pesticides, you dump the herbicides, you dump the uh, fertilizers, and then you harvest. I mean, I, I'm obviously oversimplifying, but the imp the indication that I got from the research is that there's more careful management that needs to go into organic farms compared to conventional farms. Um, and that actually, that makes organic farming sound superior, but it's actually not superior because simpler is better. You know, if the more work that has to go into something, um, 
the more resources are being used up and therefore the less efficient it is. So it's actually a good thing that conventional agriculture seems to be simpler than organic agriculture. However, we need to take all these things into consideration. Um, and studies have been done comparing the, um, the price differences of organic versus conventional fruit. Uh, once again, the prices vary greatly um, between foods, between brands, between products, etc. Um, they're generally higher, uh, the price differences are generally higher for processed foods and for meats than they are for uh, grains and vegetables. However, uh, one study I, I saw was that average prices in the US were about 50% to 60% higher for organic foods than for conventional foods. And in the EU it was somewhat lower than that because organic agriculture has subsidies uh, in, in the European Union, whereas it does not in the US. So, let's say about 50% higher price. Now, some of that will be reflective of higher production costs and lower yields. Some of it, though, will be reflective of simply um, a price discrimination effect. Basically, it means that price discrimination refers to the fact that if your consumers are willing to pay more, you have an ability to charge more. And it's people who buy organic agriculture are likely be willing to pay more for their food because they believe it has a higher it is of a higher quality, even though we sh even though our analysis showed that it probably isn't. They believe it is of higher quality, so they're willing to pay more for it, and so uh, producers are, are able to sell it for more. Now, that's that difference is significant because if, say, we completely switched over to organic food, everyone would have to buy organics, and so that price discrimination effect would go away, and so prices would be able to fall, somewhat at least. So not all of that price difference is due to um, pure differences in costs. Although I'd say probably most of it is because price discrimination you, you also requires a degree of market power. Um, and the only way you can maintain market power in this case is if you have some kind of barriers to entry to um, uh, of new organic ag uh, farmers entering the market. And obviously there are, you know, s startup capital costs, but I, I, I don't see the evidence for significant barriers to entry. So, you know, if levels of profit for organic agriculture were significantly higher than for conventional farms, <laughs> you'd expect to see an expansion of the industry. And in fact, that is what we see at the moment. So perhaps, um, perhaps organic prices will continue to fall relative to conventional prices. But the point is that if there was a huge effect, um, you'd, you'd expect much more rapid expansion of the industry. And so because the industry is not expanding that rapidly, you know, it's not like 300% per year, or anything like that, then probably most of the price differential is due to cost differential and not, you know, higher profits through price discriminations. From what I read, it seems that a mixed approach is probably the, um, is probably what's necessary. Now, there are environmental benefits to organic agriculture, but it those come at the cost of a higher cost of production. Now, from some, some of the studies I read indicated that many of the benefits of organic agriculture could be achieved without actually adapting you know, f the, the full organic agriculture practice. So, for example, uh, organic farmers eliminate weeds through frequent mechanical um, weeding and crop rotation and cover crops. The same result could probably be achieved through limited use of herbicides com combined with no-till farming techniques. Also, in Europe, higher yields of conventional agriculture permit some of the land that, that's saved to be used to plant trees on, and that and the, um, and that's being done as a result of government subsidies in Europe as we speak. Um, and these trees that are planted are harvested for wood, but in the meantime, while they're growing, they serve as sort of havens of environmental diversity for different species, for different species, and also uh, as carbon sinks. 
Um, but you can only do that if you have the extra land uh, available as a result of high yields of conventional agriculture. There are also techniques of integrated farm management, which basically incorporates some of the techniques of organic farming, but also using some pesticides and fertilizers. And that, I think, is going to be the way to go. Clearly, it seems that you can get fairly very high yields, not as high, but very high yields, without using any pesticides or herbicides, um, and without using any artificial fertilizers. So, if we just used a little bit of these pesticides and fertilizers when necessary, that would bring up yields, probably to pretty much parity with conventional techniques, while still maintaining most of the environmental benefits of 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 organic agriculture. And most of the techniques of organic agriculture, like for example cover cropping, use of manure, um, crop rotation, are not dependent upon eschewing, eschewing the use of artificial fertilizers and pesticides. So there's no reason why we can't have a combination of organic and conventional techniques. And remember that organic, the organic agriculture movement was has its roots in philosophy of life and not in agricultural science. And that's actually a quote from, from one of the studies that I read. So there's no need to go, you know, all out ag uh, organic agriculture. You know, there's nothing, there's no reason to totally stop the use of artificial pesticides and fertilizers. Yes, they are causing some damage in terms of nitrate pollution and uh, erosion and so on. Uh, but there's no need to totally eliminate them. We can just reduce their use um, and therefore get most of the environmental benefits, but not totally give up their um, their benefits in terms of higher crop yields either. Really, at the, end of, at the end of the day, the problem is that environmental and social costs are not all factored into the costs of conventional farming. And the biggest ones of that are soil erosion, pollution of surface water and groundwater, and hazards to human health, and also effects of biodiversity. They are not all factored into current conventional agricultural production, basically because the farmer doesn't have to pay for them. You know, if he um, reduces biodiversity or um, if he pollutes surrounding rivers, that he doesn't have to pay for that at all. Uh, the best way of solving this problem would be simply to, uh, as the economic jargon is, internalize the externality. Um, farmers imp are imposing external costs upon society. Uh, we need to internalize those costs uh, by, for example, putting a tax upon um, use of fertilizers um, as a result uh, so that uh, farmers have to take into account the, uh, the costs that they are imposing in terms of erosion and, and water pollution on everyone else. And therefore, they will reduce their use of fertilizers and pesticides just by themselves because you know, now they're having to pay the higher cost because of the tax that we've imposed. And I'll, I'll definitely talk more about this idea of externalities and taxation of externalities in a future podcast because uh, I need to flesh that, out, flesh that out in a bit more detail. Uh, but one of the studies that I that I saw tried to put a dollar value on the cost of erosion and uh, um, pollution of um, soil, uh, pollution of soil and water bodies, and the figure that they came out with was about fifty-five billion dollars per year. Now compare that to average, uh, sorry, total food spending in U.S. households in two thousand and three, which was about six hundred billion dollars. Now, if we assume that organic food is on average going to be fifty percent more expensive then if the U.S. completely shifted to organic food, cost would be about $300 billion. Now, this ignores the price premium effect, which I talked about before, and the possibilities of economies of scale for organic agriculture. So maybe the real effect would probably be less than that. However, the estimated benefits of switching to organic agriculture, based on these studies that I quoted before, are probably only about $40 billion per year. And that's based on um, about $15 billion per year um, costs of water pollution, which would be totally eliminated because organic agriculture doesn't use pesticides or fertilizers really at all, 
and $55 billion of estimated erosion damages would be reduced about in half, based on one of the studies that I read, which, which stated that organic agriculture has about half as much erosion damage as conventional agriculture. So if you sum all that up, it comes to about $40 billion of damage, environmental damage that will be avoided through complete adoption of organic agriculture. And that compares to the my $300 billion estimate of the cost of it. So it seems that organic agriculture probably isn't worth the price. Now, the figures that I've stated are obviously very crude. It's very hard to measure these things. But, you know, when the, when the costs are about an order of magnitude higher than the benefits, 300 versus billion versus 40 billion, that's probably indicative of the fact that, you know, these things are not worth it. As I've stated before, probably the best approach would be to adopt a tax on the externalities of erosion and, and water pollution and then let the farmers themselves decide, you know, how much they should rate in use of pesticides and fertilizers and how much they should use organic practices or to the degree the degree to which it's not worth using the organic practices and it's best to stick with conventional. So my advice to you is that um, it's probably not worth buying organic food. The price is too high and the risks to your health are not significant. The risk to the environment, yeah, they're real, but I guess it just depends upon you know how much of an environmental consci conscious you ha consciousness you have because, let's face it, you individually buying organic produce is not going to make any difference to erosion or anything like that. It's um, uh, only a, a, a sort of nationwide approach to these problems is going to is going to really make any difference, which is why we need something like a tax on the externality. So. My take on this whole big debate about organic agriculture is that I don't think it's really worth it, but the organic movement does have some legitimate points about uh, environmental pollution, and definitely we need to look at those things, particularly erosion. It seems like erosion of soil is one of the biggest problems. Soil is a precious resource, and we cannot continue to allow it to be eroded through um, negligent farming practices as is occurring at the moment. So. Uh, that's that's all I have to say on organic agriculture. I hope that you've learned something from this podcast and also this uh, two-part series on organic agriculture. It's a controversial subject and I tried to get to the bottom of the science behind it, which is what this podcast is all about. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please help to spread the word by posting a positive review on iTunes or any other podcast aggregate site um, that you come across, or by sharing the podcast with a friend. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact me. Uh, my email address is fods12, that's F-O-D-S-1-2, at gmail.com. You can also find the show notes for this podcast and leave comments at uh, fods12.podbean.com. That's http um, fods12.podbean.com, no www in that address. And I'll talk to you next week.